Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, a 4th of July bonus episode, How Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge Changed the United States, an interview with Lawrence Jerdom. I'm excited to welcome Lawrence Jerdom to the show today. He also goes by LJ. LJ is a history professor at Fordham University and author of The Rough Rider and the Professor, a new dual biography out today about the friendship and political alliance between Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge. And you know, Lodge is a guy who I always wish I had talked more about before. I kept looking for opportunities to put him in the narrative and missed out. Uh, And I'm excited that today we'll get to shine more light on him. LJ, thank you for joining me. Kenny, it's great to be here. Thanks for uh, letting me stop in. So everybody knows Theodore Roosevelt, but fewer people know Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, At a high level, who was Lodge and why is he important? Well, Lodge was a member of one of the nation's elite families whose lineage really goes back to the founding of the country. His great ancestor, um, someone Lodge was very proud of and wrote a great deal about, uh, George Cabot, was the second senator from Massachusetts. And Lodge followed that sort of tradition by serving in the U.S. Senate from 1893 until his death in 1924. But um, Lodge is commonly known, I think you might recall from high school, as the guy who was responsible for destroying Woodrow Wilson's dream uh, of the League of Nations. He was the uh, head of the Foreign Relations Committee at the time in the Senate, and he really led the charge to uh, reject the uh, Versailles Treaty, which contained uh, the League of Nations. But for our purposes, he really should be known as the guy who lit the fuse that allowed Theodore Roosevelt to, as he said, rise like a rocket (laughs) into the stratosphere of of national politics. Now, without question, you know, as we know, based on, as you said, biographies, number of biographies written on Roosevelt is a ton. He's an exceptional guy who was a naturalist, a sportsman, a historian, a politician, a conservationist. But really, um, Henry Cabot Lodge, uh, really, one can say, was responsible for helping Roosevelt become president far earlier than he otherwise would have. Roosevelt certainly would have become president of the United States at some point because of his exceptional intellectual and political abilities. But Lodge really played a role in helping Roosevelt rise through the ranks from 1884 until 1901, when he became uh, vice president and then president of the United States. That's 18 years. Uh, And Lodge played a huge role in helping uh, TR map his path to power. And, And as you point out, you know, in the future, their destinies is for Roosevelt to be president, for Lodge to be a senator for many years. But that was a long way off when they first met. When did these two guys first meet and how the relationship start off? You know, did they start off as friends, as political allies? What was it? Well, they both were these, you know, it's surprising. They had a lot in common. They were both these sort of Eastern elites from uh, very formidable and prominent families, Lodge from Boston, uh, Roosevelt from New York, and uh, they all, they both went to Harvard together. Hmm. Uh, Roosevelt was seven years Lodge's junior 
Mm-hmm. And they didn't really know one another at Harvard. Lodge was a professor, oh. such as the title of the book. He was yeah. actually a professor. He had received a PhD, one of the first PhDs in history from Harvard. And at the time Roosevelt was there, Lodge was teaching a class uh, uh, on colonial history. Uh, he was not what we would call a scintillating instructor. Being that when he started, he had a class of about 15, and within the first week, it dropped to about six. Um, not a good sign no. if you're going to make academia uh, your, your profession. And they came to know one another through um, the Porcellian Club, really the most elite club uh, at Harvard. Uh, both of them were members and... Uh, when TR was a student there, he was going there quite frequently. Lodge was still going there, even when he was a professor. He'd go for football games, pep rallies, that sort of thing. And they would say hello. They knew one another. Alice Lee, Roosevelt's first wife, uh, is was related to Lodge, but oh. very distantly. Huh. And they actually met one another briefly, I think, at a reception uh, in Boston, but they really didn't become friendly until 1884. Both men were selected to represent their respective states at the 1884 Republican Convention. And it was really at that convention, and even a little bit beforehand, where they really became friendly. Both of them at the time were optimistic uh, Republicans who were very much what we would call mugwumps. They were on the liberal side of the fence, or as one could call mugwumps, they really they were in the center of the fence. You know, they didn't really, they <laughs> right. bent one way, and then yeah. they bent the other way. Um, and they became friendly uh, when Roosevelt reached out after Lodge had written him a letter congratulating hmm. him about being named the uh, delegate uh, to the convention from New York. Both of them loved history. Lodge was a, a pretty well-known historian uh, by this point. He was writing uh, and teaching. Uh, Roosevelt had written this famous book on the war, on the naval, uh, the history of the naval campaign for the United States during the War of 1812. I'm pretty sure Lodge had read it because he was a, a, a guy who read everything. Mm-hmm. He also was always had politics and the Republican Party on his mind. Roosevelt was very dynamic. Uh, he was uh, being written about quite a bit, even though he was a young man. And Lodge was probably like, I really need to meet this guy. There's something mm. very special about him. Uh, Roosevelt was, was recovering from the loss of his wife and mother mm. who had died on the same day in 1884 to the point that they were literally getting ready to sell the house that uh, that he and Alice had lived in mm-hmm. uh, in the city, but he had he wrote Henry Cabot Lodge and said, "Why don't you come down? Why don't we have dinner? And why don't we go to Washington together the next day?" Which is something Lodge had proposed to see if we can find someone other than James Blaine, uh, who neither man liked, who was right, the right. Uh, nominee, going to be the nominee, the presumptive the nominee, party, yeah. Or, Kind of, there was a lot of corruption that 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 sort of circled around Blaine and both Roosevelt and Lodge said, "Let's see if we can find someone better." 
And that was sort of the beginning of this relationship. They went down to Washington together. Uh, there was little uh, they came up with uh, in terms of people who were willing to run for president against Blaine. But they said, you know what, uh, let's get let's get back to New York. Uh, Cabot, get back to Boston and we'll rendezvous in Chicago and see if we can figure out uh, some more strategy about uh, preventing the Blaine train from uh, reaching the nomination. And, and yeah. that's really how this relationship started. And I, I remember Blaine, James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine, as he exactly. was taunted. Um, yeah. Let's talk more about that 1884 Republican convention. It's something I've talked a bit about in the show in the past, a very kind of high drama convention of like everybody knew it was going to be Blaine, but there were these mugwumps who really didn't want it to be. So how did that convention cement this partnership and relationship between Lodge and Roosevelt? Well, Lodge and Roosevelt were determined to do what they could to prevent Blaine from winning. Lodge had and had throughout his life a tremendous antenna, political antenna. He would have been a marvelous political consultant today. Mm -hmm. He really was able to understand which way the winds were blowing uh, on the Republican side. And he basically more or less knew that there was little anyone could do to prevent Blaine from being uh, nominated. But he and Roosevelt uh, thought about uh, other people. They thought about a senator uh, from Vermont, whose name uh, now escapes me, uh, who was sort of a curmudgeon, but a very honest one, <laughs> but had no dynamism at all yeah. uh, and, and never really had a chance of receiving uh, any votes of any kind. Uh, Roosevelt and Lodge attempted to disrupt the convention by having, uh, by having an African-American placed as the uh, uh, chairman uh, of the convention, uh, which was something that uh, a lot of the members of the Republican Party didn't want. Uh, so, uh, but they were successful and they were able to do it. It was actually a former congressman from Mississippi Mm. who uh, was very um, well-spoken, very elegant man, who initially didn't want to be, uh, have anything to do with uh, being uh, put up there for the uh, chairman of the convention. But Roosevelt and Lodge convinced them, said, it's your solemn duty, you're a loyal Republican, we need the African-American uh, support. And this gentleman was willing uh, to do it. And that was really the high point of the convention for uh, Lodge and Roosevelt. It was really a very dynamic moment. The, uh, the, uh, the arena was jam-packed. Uh, people were ordering sandwiches and other <laughs> drinks, including some of those I'm sure, Kenny, you can imagine were far stronger than just the uh, <laughs> casual water and, uh, and pop. And by this point, um, hours, long periods of time went on. People were yelling, uh, vote, vote, vote. Others were yelling, no, no, no. Lodge got up on a chair, made this dramatic introduction of, of this, uh, this African-American delegate, calling, saying that the African-Americans were the blood, life and blood of the Republican Party. Uh, Roosevelt got up on a chair as well. Uh, he was yelled at by a delegate uh, from New Jersey, who he, who Roosevelt then responded with, you know, basically, shut your, shut your head. And, uh, 
And then in the end, uh, Blaine was nominated. There was nothing anybody <laughs> could do about it. Uh, the, nobody could come to any uh, agreement about any uh, compromise candidate. There were obviously people who were unhappy with Blaine, but but nobody could could come up with uh, any solution. Blaine is, as you probably know, was the great star of 1884. You know, he had this, he was a very charismatic looking man. He had this kind of very kind of the plumed knight, they mm -hmm. called him, you know, with this incredible beard to the end, uh, to the point that it's rumored. And I actually read about this, but didn't put it in the book that, cause I couldn't find evidence, but apparently there was a disturbed individual at one point who got up on the top of the U.S. Capitol and saw Blaine coming down the street. His his beard was so prominent that you couldn't miss him. Yeah. And the guy took a shot at him. Oh, goodness. Um, I've never been able to find evidence about this. It was written in a paper, but I couldn't find any documentation. No, no second person said it happened. I yeah. took it out of the book. I mean, it was really, you know, yeah. I mean, he loved, you know, he wore, he, was, he dressed beautifully. He wore uh, pinstriped coats, uh, you know, dramatic uh, looking buttons. He lived very well. Um, he enjoyed life. He was an incredibly dynamic guy. He rehearsed all of his speeches, but he was also a very insecure man. He was a hypochondriac. Mm -hmm. He had been standing next to James Garfield right, when Garfield right. was shot. Mm -hmm. And he really, uh, I don't think he ever got over that. And he just you know, never really didn't even want to run for president in 1884. It was uh, those around him that 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 convinced him uh, to uh, to do so. So, so uh, that's the kind of the, the, the context that we have in 1884. It was an incredible convention. I can't imagine what it must have been like. The results of it uh, after Blaine is nominated, Roosevelt is is livid. Tinley, uh, <laughs> yeah. at the congressman at the time from Ohio, yeah, comes over to Roosevelt. You know, even then, McKinley is very congenial, very upbeat. He wants to uh, have Roosevelt get up and essentially, you know, accept the idea publicly, sure. uh, applaud the idea. Roosevelt will not do it. He stalks out of the, the convention, walks the street back to his hotel. He's intercepted by a reporter from the New York world who said, um, you know, Mr. Roosevelt, or, or even after this convention, are you going to vote for uh, Blaine? And, and Roosevelt mumbled something that, that <laughs> well, he wasn't sure what he was going to do. He was going to go to uh, Dakota uh, out west and basically dismiss this whole thing, but he was not going to be involved in any politics for the foreseeable future. Uh, Lodge was also very upset. Uh, he didn't. He made public comments where he believed Blaine could not win uh, the election, but he wasn't as uh, as fiery as Roosevelt. I mean, that's why, in a way, I open up my the initial forward of my book is called Fire and Ice because they mm. really were completely different in terms of character. Lodge was very careful, very calculating in what he said. Roosevelt would just blurt stuff out, you know, like where his, his mind and emotions took him. And their, uh, you know, their response to a convention with an outcome they didn't like is good foreshadowing to something that's going to come later in their relationship. And mm -hmm, we'll get to that exactly. down the road. 
yeah. immediately out of this. You know, Roosevelt, ah, I'm going after the Dakotas. You know, Lodge sticks around Boston. But the political careers really quickly do start to evolve for both of these. Who's the the leader at first? Who's the mentor? Who's the more experienced one? And and how are they helping each other out during this period of rise between that convention and, you know, getting up to 1901? Well, you know, as I, as I said, Lodge was seven years uh, older than one another. And what this book is really about at the heart of it is friendship and what friends do to help one another. Uh, Roosevelt and Lodge were very, very supportive of one another throughout all their, their entire lives, really, except up until, as you said, this moment in, in 1912, where there was definitely uh, a break. We'll but get there. <laughs> Lodge, Lodge was, was very supportive of Roosevelt. Uh, he was, Roosevelt really admired Lodge. He called him a uh, basically a, a scholar in politics. You know, he was a man who had one foot in the political arena, another foot in the academic uh, arena. And Roosevelt really viewed Lodge as this kind of model. You know, he kind of saw Lodge as the kind of person that maybe he could be as he rose through the ranks. I mean, Rose, as I, Roosevelt, as I said earlier, had written that book on uh, on the War of 1812, so we've got some academic success there, and then he was in the state legislature, so we've got some political success there. Um, at the time they meet, Lodge is definitely moving uh, upward much quicker uh, than Roosevelt is. He uh, is in the uh, Massachusetts legislature. He's making a run for the Congress in 1884, something which is uh, he fails to do directly because of his decision to support Blaine in the 1884 election. Uh, and uh, by this point, Rose Lodge has also written a good deal more than Roosevelt has. Uh, in 1886, Lodge is successful, makes it to Congress. Roosevelt, after the 1884 convention, he really steps down from politics for a while. Uh, he had served in the New York legislature. The 1884 disaster occurs. He goes off to Dakota to be this sort of gentleman rancher uh, and rides horses, goes on cattle drives, uh, rounds up outlaws. And he writes Lodge about all of these things. I mean, right. they were very, yeah, they're very still in touch. Yeah. They were very competitive uh, uh, together. I think Roosevelt, on some levels, was more competitive uh, than Lodge was. Lodge was like just very happy to read about these things, and Tierra would be like, "Well, I caught a couple of, of cow rustlers today, and we we rounded them up, or I did this, or I did that." But Lodge is very meticulous about where he's going. Uh, he is ostracized after 1884 very, very significantly to the point that uh, he more or less uh, doesn't, doesn't really continue to remain in Boston. Once he wins his, his office in Washington, he really stays there most of the time or goes to his summer place in Nahant, which is uh, on the eastern coast of Massachusetts, and it's where his congressional seat is. Um, but he's really ostracized by the folks in Beacon Hill, up on Beacon Hill, who he, who he grew up with. Uh, but they never forgave him for voting for James Blaine, essentially picking politics oh. over principle. And Lodge never forgave them either. 
uh, he could be very vindictive and, and very angry, and he was very angry about being treated very poorly by some friends who he'd known for years and years and years. The only One of the only people who stood by him, ironically, and this comes later, was Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who Lodge eventually rewards by positioning him to be the justice of the justice on the, of the Supreme Court. Roosevelt continues to be in uh, out west. He campaigns for Lodge in that losing effort uh, mm-hmm. in 1884 uh, and then uh, continues to campaign for Lodge in 1886. Roosevelt eventually, with Lodge's help, uh, gets uh, put on the Civil Service Commission. Right. Uh, with Lodge's help, gets made. Uh, so Lodge gets him back into politics. War. Yeah, yeah. Lodge brings him back. Uh, he really believed that Roosevelt, uh, to borrow the Frank Franklin Roosevelt's phrase, had a rendezvous with destiny. <laughs> he really believed yeah. that this man was special. He believed that this guy could be president of the of the United States, and 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 Lodge really mentors him. He really uh, takes a hand in Roosevelt's career and, and, and pushes him uh, forward. And, and both men are there to support each other. Mm-hmm. When Lodge is defeated in 1884, Roosevelt is there to encourage him, you'll be back. The Republican Party needs you. There's nobody, no one better out there than you. When, Ro- when Roosevelt loses this abbreviated run for the mayoralty of New York several years later, Lodge is there, goes down to New York, comforts Roosevelt. You'll be back. Don't worry. Um, they're there uh, during the loss of uh, Lodge's wife, Nanny, years later, Lodge's son, uh, Bay, at the age of 32. Lodge is there when uh, Quentin's when Quentin, Roosevelt's youngest son, is killed at the end of the First World War, they're always there for one, for one another, standing shoulder to shoulder, both at good times and bad. And, and, and this book is really about that. It's really uh, what, uh, sort of an, an example of, of how friendship can really carry two men to, mm-hmm. to success. Now, we, we know about Roosevelt's politics. We know he was very progressive for his time. Was Lodge also that way? What what were Lodge's uh, political philosophies? And the answer is no. (laughs) No. (laughs) Lodge was a fiscal, small government, and constitutional conservative. However, he was not an ideologue. He was a gradualist. He was a historian, after all. He understood that change occurs over time. And Lodge disliked rapid change. He actually mm. thought rapid change was dangerous mm-hmm. uh, for the country. And, and this was one of the real reasons or one of the prominent reasons that, that Lodge went into politics uh, to begin with. He thought the, during uh, the Gilded Age, uh, he was disturbed with this massive change that was going on during the Gilded Age. You know, we had massive industrialization, we had massive immigration, we had the rise of these robber barons, these great malefactors of great of great wealth like James J. Hill, Cornelius Vanderbilt, J.P. Morgan, and others. And Lodge believed men like that were bad for society because they seemed to be gentlemen who lived by their own rules, who believed that money 
uh, allowed them to do anything they wanted to do. Lodge lived, as I said earlier, in Nahant, which was a very, is a very rustic uh, community in Massachusetts. He disdained places like Newport, the grand mansions, the excess, the, the sort of immorality that existed around, among, this, uh, among this, this core group. And Lodge found all of this stuff very problematic and was determined to do what he could to change it. So... That's where Lodge is. He, he's, he's got some reform in his blood, but he's generally, I want to go slow. And for most exactly. of the relationship, he's the mentor. And this turns on its head in 1901 when William McKinley, the president, is shot. Teddy Roosevelt, the vice president, becomes president. And now you have TR, who, he, you know, he's this, he wants to go fast. He wants to make things happen. He becomes president. How does that impact the relationship between Roosevelt and Lodge? Well, as I said earlier, Lodge loved Roosevelt. You know, he really, he, he really did. And in fact, he, he says at one point, I adore him uh, every more than more every time uh, I see him. I mean, it was a really, it was a real love affair, I think, between the two of them, especially uh, with Lodge, who just thought Roosevelt was just the greatest guy he ever knew, would do anything he could for him. And he really positioned him so that he could become president. Right. Of course, no one had expected, right. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the assassination of, of President McKinley. Um, but Lodge was, was happy uh, that Roosevelt had become president. It wasn't the way neither man wanted, but it, 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 it happened. And TR uh, is, is obviously delighted about this, mm. but the relationship now shifts because throughout the early portion of that relationship, really from 1884 right through the vice presidency, Roosevelt had been dependent yeah. on Lodge. He'd written him these letters. I need your help. Mm. What do you think? Mm. What can I do? Mm-hmm. Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? Uh, do you know anybody here? Do you know anybody there? Well, that's over now. Uh, Roosevelt is at the top of the pyramid, as we could say. Lodge is in the Senate. He knows that's as far as he can go. He openly admits that to Roosevelt in a letter. Um, But Lodge still wants to kind of keep uh, some, uh, have some, some, uh, stay in the game, so to speak. And he um, continues to try to get Roosevelt to do certain things, particularly in the area of patronage, Hmm. Um, trying to do this for a supporter. Can Hmm. you get this person uh, named to that position? Can you put this fellow uh, in your cabinet? Can you name this fellow as ambassador uh, to the Philippines? Roosevelt continues to enjoy Lodge's company. Uh, He writes he and his wife, Nanny, frequently. I'm alone here in the White House. Could you guys come over for dinner? I want to talk Shakespeare. I also want to talk about this and that. Yeah. Uh, can we go riding together? Yeah. Um, I'll be available at, at 2 o'clock. They talked about foreign policy because Lodge had prominent positions uh, on the committee regarding the Philippines and, and other areas. Uh, he talked to Lodge about what he was doing in terms of the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. But in terms of 
appointments and general advice that he would receive from Lodge, he would take it with a grain of salt. Roosevelt was very concerned about some aspect of impropriety or the appearance Mm -hmm. of impropriety. Mm -hmm. He didn't want Lodge to, quote unquote, have that carte blanche to the White House, which is what a lot of people believed. And this is something that was circulating in the media. And I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you two, one particular example. Uh, there was an article on a Sunday morning in the Boston Herald that had this huge article, which the title of which was Henry Cabot Lodge, the boss of Washington. And it <laughs> gave the impression yeah. that he had control over Roosevelt, that he was the great puppet master, that mm-hmm. there was a marvelous cartoon of Roosevelt on a, on, a, on a huge phone with all of these different lines, and there were all these different positions that were there, like, I don't know, uh, Philippines or right. Tariff or this or that. And underneath was the caption, Henry Cabot Lodge, operator. <laughs> um, and, and I think these things really upset Roosevelt to the yeah. point that he was confronted by a journalist early early in his tenure. And the journalist said, Mr. President, I'm just wondering, um, how are you going to work your relationship with Senator Lodge now that you're president? And he alluded to the fact that all these different people believed that 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 Lodge had a special relationship with the president, that he could come and go as he pleased. If he asked Roosevelt for a favor, Roosevelt would do it. And Roosevelt looked at the journalist. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. Lodge does not run me. I run him. Hmm. And, and that's basically saying this kind of junior partnership that everybody around here seems to believe still exists, that's gone. Yeah. I'm president. And I want everybody to know that. And there were more than one occasion where Lodge tried to insert his will on mm-hmm. Roosevelt. Certainly he had, uh, he was tremendously responsible for, um, for, the, uh, for Wendell, Oliver Wendell Holmes being appointed to the Supreme Court. I mean, uh, Roosevelt did meet with him. Uh, they got on very well together. Roosevelt seemed to believe that Lodge agreed with all of the positions, and that was okay. But Lodge understood very well that you cannot pressure Theodore Roosevelt. And in fact, he made that argument to a point where he wrote a memo about something where he said nobody could pressure uh, Theodore Roosevelt. That's just not something that happened. But Lodge frequently went against his own advice and did try to convince Roosevelt to do certain things that Roosevelt was unwilling to do. And one example had to do with the 200th anniversary of Brookline, Massachusetts. And when Roosevelt was in the White House, Lodge sent him a note and he said, you know, um, the mayor of Brookline has, uh, is having a celebration for the bicentennial, and I would love it if you would write a proclamation uh, mm-hmm. declaring it a special day. Roosevelt was livid. He wrote Lodge <laughs> back and said, my dear man, don't ever write me this kind of letter to- again. Everyone is trying to get me to do something, and I cannot do it. Yeah. Lodge, I think, was seriously taken aback because he responded with, uh, oh, I was only kidding. <laughs> well, 
Lodge was not a, was a man with absolutely no sense of humor. So I think that, you know, that was really not something uh, that was going to happen. So there were other moments of 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 stress. Yeah. And and uh, but but again, Lodge never lost his love for right. Roosevelt, you know, during this period. He still thought he was the greatest man ever, would do anything for him. And I think Roosevelt thought the same, and they would run into disagreements here and there, but I think it was always important for both men to keep that friendship solid, keep the the two of them together, try to, uh, I guess as President Obama used to say, perhaps you'll disagree, but maybe in the end, you won't be too disagreeable. And, and, and that's what, what, yeah. what, that's what they, they tried to do. So they saw this bedrock of friendship with some stresses now added to the mix. But during these almost eight years that Roosevelt's in the White House and Lodge's in the Senate, were there any big issues that they either accomplished together, like a legislative accomplishment, or that they went toe-to-toe on? And if the latter, who won? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting because, as I said to you earlier about Lodge's political uh, differences with right. Roosevelt, um, both of them had a different view, a differing view of government. Lodge uh, was always very suspect of any time Roosevelt thought about using any kind of federal power, mm. particularly when it came to interstate commerce, mm. uh, and and. Roosevelt kind of thought the opposite. The, the thing that, that's the most interesting is that uh, in 1906, Roosevelt actually considered appointing a Democrat to the Supreme Court. Hmm. And this came out of his disappointment with Oliver Wendell Holmes. Hmm. Um, in 1904, uh, you had that famous decision of the Northern Securities case, which was a, a large railroad trust uh, created by uh, James J. Hill, uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, and, and, uh, and others. And Roosevelt hoped that he was able to uh, essentially uh, use the, uh, this case as kind of an example of his trust busting. Mm-hmm. And he expected it the vote among the justices to be unanimous. Mm-hmm. Well, the administration uh, was successful and they won in, in the majority in terms of the decision. However, Roosevelt was livid when he discovered that Holmes was not among the majority. Mm-hmm. He really couldn't quite understand. He's like, wait a minute. I had a long conversation with this man about yeah. labor, other things. We have dinner at the White House all the time. Uh, we talk about these positions, and now you, Mr. Holmes, argue that you don't think uh, the Northern Securities Company uh, violated interstate commerce. So Roosevelt essentially is like, uh, this is ridiculous. Um, it, just, it just shows you I thought he was a good Republican. Mm-hmm. And he decides that essentially when his next chance comes comes to promote or uh, a individual to the Supreme Court in 1906... He says, I'm just going to pick somebody who agrees with all the positions that I do. And I don't care if they're a Democrat or Republican. He's also a little pissed off at Lodge because (laughs) Lodge is the one who really pushed Holmes 
whole lodge had gone and, and he, Roosevelt had asked him to have a long meeting, a long interview with Holmes, ask him about all these positions, all these arguments. And Lodge had done that. And he had reported back to Roosevelt, oh, he agrees with everything that, that mm. we do. Why don't you talk to him a little bit and you'll, and you'll find out. Roosevelt was probably just annoyed with himself that he somehow didn't see right. something or didn't listen or didn't study something or, or who knows what it was. So Roosevelt decides at the behest of his soon-to-be uh, enemy, William Howard Taft, <laughs> to appoint a guy by the name of Horace Lurton, a lawyer who was from Tennessee, uh, who was a Democrat. And uh, Roosevelt thought it was just a great idea. I mean, he, he wrote... Uh, lodge a letter saying Lurton agrees with this, he agrees with that, he's in favor of, of suffrage for African Americans, he's the perfect person. Mm -hmm. Lodge uh, is very opposed to um, this idea. And, and going back to what I said, Lodge was a strict traditionalist. Yeah. He believed in the Constitution as written. Right. He was not into, as he said, Pointing, appointing someone who is a descendant of John C. Calhoun or another one of these secessionists uh, that, uh, that we don't need. He said, we want somebody in the tradition of, of John Marshall. Uh, and and uh, so Lodge was very, very upset about this idea from a judicial and constitutional point of view, more so because politics was the dominant train of thought in Henry Cabot Lodge's head every minute of every day, he said, you know, if you do this, Mr. President, there are going to be a lot of Republicans who are going to be very, very disappointed, who are going to be very, very unhappy uh, with you. In the end, Lurton was not appointed having nothing to do with Lodge's warning. It's just that there were certain rulings that after there was greater exploration into the judge's record, uh, that uh, Roosevelt realized he was not the right person. And uh, a gentleman by the name of William Moody, who had been TR's attorney general, who also happened to be from Massachusetts, was uh, appointed uh, in his stead. Really where the two worked together, uh, I would say the most, where that friendship really aligned was their mutual hatred of Woodrow Wilson uh, <laughs> during World War I. Both men despised uh, the president. They believed he was intellectually dishonest, that he was a megalomaniac, uh, that he essentially was going to do anything he could to uh, get a second term. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, uh, they believed he was weak, and they believed that uh, he was going to weaken uh, the influence and the power of the United States. And in terms of this particular moment around World War I, uh, Roosevelt and Lodge were very much into the idea of preparedness, of military preparedness. And they were very angry at Wilson because Wilson seemed to be unwilling uh, to realize the dangers uh, that lurked ahead. And so they really did their utmost to work together to try to alert the nation uh, to this, uh, forgive me, clear and present danger, which was, <laughs> which was lurking uh, 
abroad. And eventually, uh, the American public started to favor the idea of, of rearmament. But you have to remember, the country was very isolationist right. uh, during uh, this period, and even became more isolationist after uh, the, uh, the First World War. So that, that's Roosevelt and the presidency and their relationship. And in, in 1909, Roosevelt leaves office. And then three years later, he tries to win it back. He loses the Republican nomination. And then this moment that I teased earlier, he is so upset about the outcome of the convention that he bolts the GOP to run with a third party. And I can imagine that would have stressed his relationship with Republican Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, what did Lodge think of TR's third party run? And did he back him in it? Did he oppose him in it? Or did he support Taft? Because this is also the election that's going to make it possible for Wilson to run because the GOP split. Yeah, Lodge, um, it's ironic because Roosevelt leaves the White House in 1909. He goes off on this grand safari sponsored by, uh, by Carnegie and by the Smithsonian Institution. He goes off to hunt white elephants, lions, uh, or rather, sorry, white rhinoceroses. Forgive me, a very oh. rare, so rare, I'd never actually heard of it before when I heard it. But um, Lodge is, is watching uh, Taft, He's very studiously monitoring what's going on. Lodge had this beautiful townhouse in Washington uh, on Massachusetts Avenue where he had a huge library. Uh, he had stables because he continued to be an enthusiastic horseman. And he was watching uh, Taft. Um, he knew Taft around the same time Roosevelt uh, had met Taft. Uh, they were very different uh, men, all three of them, uh, Lodge and Roosevelt, were guys who enjoyed socializing. Uh, they were kind of, uh, they enjoyed politicking, the backslapping, and all the rest of it. Taft was a very cerebral fellow, very introverted, preferred to work in his office late at night. Uh, Taft is, as you know, was Roosevelt's hand-picked successor. Uh, Roosevelt is not really watching what Taft is up to when he is in Africa. Lodge is. Mm. And Lodge starts writing Roosevelt very long, detailed, uh, kind of ominous letters wow. about what is going on at home. Yeah. That uh, Taft is, he does not seem to have that political acumen that is necessary to be a successful president. He doesn't seem to understand the politics of it all. He's late for meetings. He doesn't speak with the people he's supposed to be talking to. Uh, he's dismissive of, of people. He is removing individuals who were close uh, to, uh, to Roosevelt. Uh, and and uh, and other things, and and uh, the public is starting to lose faith in Taft. Lodge is concerned about the 1910 midterm elections. The Republicans will lose the majority. 
There are a lot of liberal Republicans out there who were upset when uh, Taft chooses to fire Roosevelt's chief uh, environmentalist, Gifford Pinchot, who many people viewed as the kind of the, uh, the carrier of the Roosevelt legacy. Uh, and then Pinchot is suddenly gone. Roosevelt is listening to all of this, but he's like, look, I'm, I'm, I've played my part. He literally says this in a letter, quote, yeah. I have played my part. Uh, give Taft some time, you know, support him, give him the help that he needs. Over time, Lodge continues to write letters. It's like he's stalking Roosevelt from Africa to Paris to Norway, um, all following Roosevelt. Everywhere Roosevelt seems to go, a letter has arrived from Henry Cabot Lodge talking about what is going on at home. Finally, uh, Roosevelt gives in and said, okay, I'll come back. I'll, I'll, I'll come back and I'll start supporting the Republican Party. A lot of people didn't want Roosevelt to come back, sure. including um, his wife, for that matter, <laughs> who, who basically was sick of all of the of politics and ne- believed that Roosevelt needed needed a rest. He needed to calm down. He was always a very hyper uh, hyper uh, hyper fellow. Henry Adams, who also plays a prominent role in my book, who was a prominent Republican liberal, very much a mugwump. Very much a kind of cynical man about uh, American politics, a brilliant correspondent who wrote these absolutely extraordinary letters, some of which were very funny. When people said, uh, why don't you let uh, Theodore Roosevelt rest for a few months, Lodge wrote to somebody, how about for life? How about that? (laughs) Um, So Roosevelt comes back. And he begins to travel the country to support uh, the Republican ticket in 1910. And Lodge says, look, just try to say all the right things. Be supportive of the candidates and don't let yourself get into any um, situations (laughs) with the media. Of course, Roosevelt never listens. And he then gives an interview to the New York Times where he basically says it was a mistake for Taft to be uh, to be president. He was wrong in wow. picking him. He never should have done it. So it's it's like Lodge lights the fuse for this, not realizing yeah. where that fuse would go. Yeah, he brought him he brought him back. You know, I mean he 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 brought him back. Lodge believed that Roosevelt could come back, uh possibly run for president again in the primary, uh knock Taft out, revive the Republican Party, win another term uh in office, but Lodge is really unaware. He, he's aware, but he's unaware of how progressive Roosevelt had become. Right. Um, he, Roosevelt had been reading about these activities taking place in the West, these open primaries, mm. the recall of judges if they believed uh, the judge had made a ruling that the public didn't want. Let's just vote him out. Mm-hmm. Now, this, of course, and of, and of course, the direct election of senators, mm-hmm. direct election of senators by the by the American people. Yeah. Something Lodge just thought was horrific. And wouldn't and it be a really, thing to like the 1910s somewhere. So we're a few years away from it, right? 
We're a few years away from that. And in fact, Lodge uh, is in, in one of his later campaigns is actually uh, has to realize this is something he has to deal with. And he actually <laughs> goes in front of the public yeah. uh, to get reelected, which ends up uh, happening successfully. But um, Roosevelt gets up and gives several speeches, one of which is one of whom, which is a famous speech in Kansas called the New Nationalism where he throws out all of this stuff, uh, direct election of senators, uh, health care, campaign finance reform, all these, they're very prescient um, ideas. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, this causes the uh, re- conservatives within the Republican Party to just be terrified. Yeah. And Lodge is also very uh, terrified. And he literally uh, comes out and he says, um, I will not support Colonel Roosevelt uh, for president because of these positions that he's uh, he's supporting. So we've got Taft and Roosevelt running in that famous mm-hmm. primary, uh, along with Robert La Follette, who doesn't last terribly long. Um, what's interesting is that after uh, Roosevelt uh, makes these statements and Lodge comes out and says, you know, I will not support Colonel Roosevelt, Lodge writes Roosevelt a letter and says, I'm going to stay out of the campaign. Our friendship mm-hmm. means too much to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to uh, become involved. However, uh, Lodge did get involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, he essentially, and I don't know, I've not read, and I don't know if Roosevelt knew about this, but he arranged for Taft to win the Massachusetts primary. Oh, wow. Um, and put that in the conservative uh, Republican uh, Column. area. Of course, the convention in 1912 occurs. Taft and Roosevelt uh, have do not have a majority. Uh, the remaining votes are votes that essentially are given to William Howard Taft because the convention has been stacked in his favor by his people. Roosevelt is livid. He walks out of the convention, runs on the bull moose ticket, something that uh, Lodge is livid. Early in the in their relationship, uh, when Roosevelt was thinking of... Uh, of running for uh, office, I think it was, I'm going to say on the liberal uh, ticket Mm -hmm. of governor, Uh, Lodge had said, never, never run outside the conventional political system. Mm -hmm. It won't get you anywhere. And at worst, you'll end up in political oblivion. So of course, Roosevelt does this. Lodge is livid, not only uh, because of the positions Roosevelt take, but Lodge deep down knows he's destroying the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Roosevelt was never comfortable within the confines of the Republican Party. He was progressive at heart. He was always unhappy within the conservative uh, arena. Uh, he drove the conventional members of the party, the party bosses, completely crazy. Uh, they didn't like him. He was difficult to work with. Uh, and when this does occur, this incredibly prolific correspondence that Lodge and Roosevelt had disappears. Wow. And they may be ex- exchanged. They exchanged a handful of letters over the next year or so. They're very polite to one another in public. Right. Uh, however, 
out on the campaign trail after uh, the convention. Uh, Roosevelt is campaigning in Massachusetts and he makes reference to Lodge as being one of the individuals responsible for stealing the nomination from him. Uh, Lodge basically is talking about Roosevelt. He said, you know what? I think people are getting a little tired of hearing him complain all the time. Um, Eventually, this breach is healed after uh, Roosevelt is shot in 1912. Mm, Right on the campaign trail. In Michigan. Mm -hmm. Is it in Michigan? I I forget where. Always make that same. Yeah. In his chest, he's got that those papers that right. that prevent him from being killed. He continues to speak despite this bullet that's lodged in him, and he said, "I am so strong. I've got the constitution of a bull moose." Mm-hmm. Well, Roosevelt is taken to a hospital. Lodge is very upset when he hears of, yeah. of what has happened. He writes these very uh, kind telegrams yeah. to uh, Edith Roosevelt and. TR saying, we're here if you need us. Uh, We really hope you get better soon. And really that revives the friendship. Things are back to normal. Uh, Lodge is invited to Roosevelt's daughter's wedding. Mm. Nobody else from Mm. uh, within that Republican group, including people who Roosevelt had once been close with, like Elihu Root and others. Mm. They're not there. Wow. So they, they have a fracture, but it, it heals, it recovers. And that takes us to the, the closing years of the friendship, because it's the closing years of Theodore Roosevelt's life, though he doesn't know yeah. it. And that's yeah. this World War I era and, and the aftermath. And this is when Lodge becomes entangled in that fight that he's most remembered for today, that you mentioned at the top, opposing mm-hmm. American entry into Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations. And I yeah. know Theodore Roosevelt, like this is right around the time TR dies, do we have a sense of if these two old friends, on again, off again allies, uh, would have been on the same page on the League of Nations? Well, on some levels, yes. I think I think Lodge was concerned about the League of Nations because he believed uh, that the United States uh, would not be have would have would not have a lead role in it. Uh, it they would it would really they would, the U.S. essentially would have to seek permission from all of the other countries if it wanted to do anything. And I think this bothered Lodge uh, a great deal because both men viewed the United States as an exceptional nation, as a great nation. Lodge and Roosevelt had spent their lives trying to elevate the United States into a, to a prominent place in the world. And Lodge believed that the League of Nations undermined all of that. Um, Roosevelt wasn't against an, a League of Nations. What he wanted was he wanted essentially what the United, United Nations has now, which is essentially a peacekeeping force, an army yeah. of its own right. at the time, because he didn't believe that uh, he thought the, the, the League of Nations would be essentially a paper tiger. Sure. That it would have no authority. Yeah. That if a nation went ahead and did something against its neighbors, what is the League of Nations going to do? It has no power to enforce uh, anything. Lodge believed the United States would play a subservient role 
within uh, this league. And he couldn't allow that. It was completely counter to everything that he believed in. He was very much an America first man. And, and the League of Nations did not allow the U.S. to be, uh, be America first. It was uh, right. America second or third or fifth or, or Equal whatever. among and all, Lodge, potentially. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Lodge just could not and would not allow that. He tried to work with Wilson uh, after Wilson uh, had his stroke. He, he tried to reach out to him, hmm. uh, but Wilson was incapacitated he really yeah. couldn't couldn't do anything but lodge did everything he could to wreck uh that yeah. document he held it up in committee he read the whole thing the whole treaty out loud it <laughs> took days he yeah. added all of these amendments to it many of right. which you know were completely useless yep. and he did everything he could to undermine yeah. uh wilson a funny moment was when wilson first arrived back, uh, I think, after he met, uh, after he was in Versailles and brought the treaty back, Lodge asked him if he could carry it, if he could carry the treaty into the Senate. And Wilson said, not on your life. You're not <laughs> um, and and uh, in the end, of course, the document goes down to right. defeat yeah. Uh, Roosevelt by this point is, is, is in the hospital. Right. Uh, he's not doing well. He's got all of these, these ailments that he's had after years of physically punishing his, uh, his body. And, and so it's around this time, Theodore Roosevelt dies, League of Nations defeated, uh, Lodge, you mentioned he'll be in the Senate serving until his death in, I think, 1924, um, yep. What becomes of Lodge? Is there is there any swan song in, in these final years of his life? Not really. I mean, Lodge continues to be very much the political man, the the loyal Republican. He, um, uh, Calvin Quee's very friendly with Harding mm-hmm. for the brief time that Warren mm-hmm. Harding is in mm-hmm. is in office. Coolidge, uh, Lodge has known a long time. They're they're both. Uh, uh, New Englanders. They're both Massachusetts men. Uh, uh, and and Coolidge is very deferential to Lodge, but uh, Lodge, I think, perhaps knows that the torch is starting to be to yeah. be passed to a younger group, to a younger audience. And and by this point, Lodge is is older. Right. He's also quite tired. Yeah. He's spending more time with his grandchildren, spending more time reading, more time writing, uh, working on uh, this great correspondence uh, between uh, he and TR. Mm, yeah. Uh, uh, and yeah. Yes, which, which we can talk about if you like. All those, those le- that, that he, Lodge basically changed all, a lot of the letters in that collection because he didn't want people to read what Roosevelt really said about certain people and, and certain, uh, Goodness. events. <laughs> so you, you mention um, Lodge's, you know, the next generation, Lodge's grandchildren, just a note to, to listeners of my podcast, the name Henry Cabot Lodge will show up again when we could to John F. Kennedy and one of his grandsons runs against Kennedy for the Senate 
and is then also on Nixon's ticket when they run for president. So we will see more of this uh, very uh, prestigious and powerful political family. Yeah, Lodge Jr. Lodge Jr. was very close with uh, with his grandfather because HCL uh, uh, Senior was was still fairly young when when his grandson was was born, and they were very they were very close to. Uh, to to one another and um, and and H H C L Junior was very very different from Senior much more of a much more telegenic much more ebullient in his personality uh, but still you know very much very very loyal Republican and 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 very pragmatic in his in his own way. Last question I got for you: What is the legacy or the lesson of the friendship between Roosevelt and Lodge? Well, I think you know. It's so interesting uh, today where we, we really uh, talk a lot about history and often uh, there's a lot of turbulence about people like uh, the founders and what they did. And there's a lot of complexity and because they did one thing, they're not a good they're not good people, et cetera. But I think the one thing we can learn from history and the one thing I certainly think we can learn from these two gentlemen is examples of patience perseverance, timing, and devotion to uh, one another. Uh, these were men of action. There was no quit uh, in either one of them. Both of them were determined to achieve success in politics, a profession that was not a natural incl- inclination for men of their stature or men of their class, but they kept at it. Mm-hmm. They didn't give up. Uh, they were determined to succeed and they wanted to achieve success and uh, they did. I think the other uh, example of this or the thing we can learn most is the importance of friendship. When the situation became uh, dire, when things were not going well, uh, each was there for the other. Uh, They really did stand shoulder to shoulder, whether it was political victory, whether it was political disaster, whether it was personal loss, whether it was personal victory, each one was always uh, there. Even when, as we talked about, that friendship was ruptured uh, by controversy over TR's positions during 1912, they reconciled. Mm -hmm. They realized that friendship was more important. And even Lodge says that in a letter. He says, our friendship is more important than any political disagreement, and that's why I'm not going to involve myself uh, in this race. These guys were far from perfect. They were stubborn. They were short-sighted. <laughs> they could be arrogant uh, and and very kind of dismissive, particularly when it came to issues of of race. Um, but they also worshipped the United States. Mm. They believed it was a great nation. Uh, they were determined to make it uh, better. They believed it was a nation that had been blessed by God to serve as a force for good uh, in the world. And look, like all friendships, the road was not smooth, but in the end, the reverence each one had for the other never faltered, even when they disagreed about the country's political future. 
If you've enjoyed this interview with LJ and want to learn more about Theodore Roosevelt and Lodge, Lawrence's book, The Rough Rider and the Professor, is out today. You can order his book online through lawrencejurdom.com, or you can find it at your favorite book purveyor of choice. You can also find him online on Twitter at ljurdem. That's L-J-U-R-D-E-M. Thank you for your time, LJ. Thanks so much, Kenny. I so appreciate you taking the time to let me stop in. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast or on Substack, Abridged Presidential Newsletter. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, World War II's still raging, the Cold War is about to begin, the stakes have never been higher, and who inherits the presidency from a dead Franklin Roosevelt? Oh, just a failed businessman, an uneducated farmer, and a World War I veteran named Harry S. Truman. And we'll see how he holds up when, as he puts it, the moon, stars, and all the planets fall on his head. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>